Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 19 this morning. We'll begin in our reading today at verse 11. Acts chapter 19. This chapter basically continues the information that Luke provides regarding Paul's ministry in Ephesus, a major city, a Roman colony in the territory, Roman territory of Asia Minor, which is in northern Turkey and slightly around the northern sector of those other nations near that particular nation of Turkey. And Paul has been already a couple of years in this building that has been provided for him, apparently that he is renting from a schoolmaster known by the name of Tyrannus. He had the school in Ephesus and he allowed Paul to use that facility to teach the Word of God. For two solid years, Paul remained there teaching the people. Now, in that climate, it was common in that day, and I believe it still is today in many of those regions where it gets so very hot in the daytime, afternoon hours, um, that many people who had jobs that they worked at would work those jobs in the morning hours, then take a period of time off in the afternoon because of the heat of the day, and then later on, after the temperature started to drop down, they would return to their work and finish their day's work in cooler weather. This apparently is what Paul must have been doing as well. He was a tent maker, you remember. While he was at Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla, his friends, who were also tent makers, were working with him in that business of making tents or leather work, if you will, in in that town of Corinth. And when they all went to Ephesus, it's apparent that they also began that as well because Paul tells us in others of his letters that Paul did not rely on the church to provide his needs, that he worked on his own to earn the money that he needed for the ministry that he was continuing to do. And although it's not specifically stated here in the book of Acts, we do find in the letters of Paul that he did that as well in Ephesus. So we know that Paul probably did the teaching in that hot part of the day in the school of Tyrannus. No air conditioning, but a lot of willing people coming to hear the word of God. And from there, many people were sent out by Paul to other communities in Asia Minor. We talked about that a little bit last time. They apparently were able to establish those churches that we know existed in the first century or early latter part of the first century at least, uh, like Philadelphia and Sardis and Thyatira and Perga and others as well in that region. So Paul's ministry in Ephesus, although he stayed right there in that community instead of traveling as he did in his first and second missionary journeys, there was a great deal of evangelistic work being done by the Apostle Paul and he sent many people out into those other regions as well instead of his going himself to those other cities that we just mentioned. So Paul is now in Ephesus in this second or rather third missionary journey and he's stationed there in Ephesus and so far for these first couple of years things have been going very, very smoothly for Paul. Remember we began in Ephesus for a solid three months teaching in the synagogues but then there was a bit of a opposition that began to arise, but it wasn't severe enough to force him to leave the city. He just went to a place very nearby, perhaps even next door, to the school of Tyrannus and began his public ministry there. And we find Paul in Ephesus for a total of nearly three years, a great amount of time that Paul spent. And if you think about it, if he spent two or even three hours a day, six days a week, for those two years in the school of Tyrannus, his teaching equated to about 2,000 to 3,000 hours of instruction over the time that he spent in Ephesus. And I did a little bit of a math in determining how does that translate to what I do in this ministry here. I teach 
if for an hour perhaps on Sunday and an hour on Thursday nights, every week, 50 weeks or so out of the year, because I do take some vacation time. But that doesn't amount to even half of what Paul did in just two years, and I've been here almost 23, almost 24 years. So think about that. That's concentrated Bible study that he was able to do there in Ephesus. Unrestrained, unchallenged, until the portion that we'll be looking at today. Verse 11 tells us that now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. And it's interesting that Luke uses this phrase, unusual miracles. The implication is that these kinds of miracles weren't the normal kinds of miracles that Paul was experiencing and had done in all of his missionary journeys. But here in Ephesus, something very, very unique was taking place. And this is what Luke records for us here in this book of Acts. Verse 12 says, So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Handkerchiefs and aprons, probably headscarves instead of handkerchiefs. They were sweatbands and aprons that he used in his tent-making work. During the time when he wasn't doing the work as a tent-maker, in the middle of the day when he was teaching, disciples apparently took some of those items that were upon Paul's body and then brought them out into the city of Ephesus and using them as a point of contact for the healing of the sick. That's remarkable. And it has been abused in this present day. If you are familiar with some of the evangelistic charlatans that are common in the world around us, there are several who have used that technique. They would send out a handkerchief by mail to unsuspecting people and say, this is my prayer cloth. And if you will send me $100, you can use this prayer cloth to receive a great blessing from the Lord healing for your body, as it was done by the Apostle Paul. Paul didn't send them out from his workplace with that kind of effort being presented by the charlatans that are in today's world. That's crazy, unbiblical, and it really does not align with what God teaches in his word. I will not discount that God does miracles still. But I do know that there are many who have chosen to take advantage of unsuspecting people. Gullibility prevails, even in the church. And we need to be very careful. What do we accept as biblical? What do we believe as truth? And we need to be very discerning in our willingness to follow after anybody who's sort of teaches these kinds of things, even subtly. And by the way, subtlety is Satan's middle name. He operates in subtlety. But these were real miracles. Evil spirits were coming out of those who were possessed. Diseases had left them because of the power of God manifest through this particular unusual set of miracles. The verse 13 continues and says, well, as a result of that, because word was spreading so fast about that kind of thing that was going on in Ephesus, it tells us in verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Something's wrong with that. First of all, itinerant Jewish exorcists, apparently they were there in Ephesus. Extra-biblical teaching indicates that there were men and women who were Jews who believed that they could cast out a demon by using the name of authority, such as Solomon or by the authority of the temple. And they went from city to city, proclaiming themselves to be exorcists who had that ability to cast out demons. 
Some were successful, apparently. Remember, Jesus even mentioned those sons of the Jews who were doing that kind of ministry, casting out demons, because he said, you charge me with this accusation that I cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Who then do your sons cast them out? The implication is that there were those who were indeed doing such things back then. Demons exist. They are real. Satan is real. He's a real entity, a personage that we know is the enemy of our souls. There are many in the church who don't think that that is so. There are many in the church. I think the numbers not that long ago, probably about 15 years or so ago, there was a study that was done and only about 47% of evangelical Christians believed in a true being known as Satan. The majority of people thought of it as being something of a, I don't know, mythological idea, concept, an allegory. Jesus said Satan is real. I take it that Jesus knew what he was talking about. And so I stand with the Lord on that. And I do believe that they still are out there in many different forms and operate in many different ways and impact many different lives. And there's no doubt in my mind that if it hadn't been for the church being in the world, they would still be very, very powerful and doing a lot of damage throughout the world. And there are places in the world where there is a great deal of demonic activity that is Unrestrained because the church has not been present. But I believe, because Jesus said regarding the church, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that as the church grew, the power of demonic activity declined. And so in this supposedly Christian nation, we have not seen a whole lot of demonic activity, but it's on the rise. I believe that that is the case. There are many who worship Satan. There are Satan worshipers that are setting up their clubs of Satan worship within the school system in many different places around our nation. This is not good. But the church has not been vocal enough, as is the case with anything that goes wrong in the world around us with regard to our position as believers in Jesus Christ. We have been silent. And as a result of that silence, there is much that is going on in the world around us that should not have been allowed. Shame on us. One of the things that I did with our study in the book of Ezra last time, we finished the book of Ezra on Thursday night, and I pointed out the fact that, you know what? Ezra was a man of God, and he prayed a prayer because of the sins of the people. But it wasn't a prayer that said, they have turned against you, Lord. This man of God, a priest, who went to Jerusalem for the sole purpose of teaching the Word of God, confessed, Lord, we have sinned against you. We are the ones who have turned away from you. He owned the sin of the people. But the people were not understanding and didn't have a knowledge of the Word of God. And as a result, they had turned to idols. Ezra was crying out to the Lord. He was pulling his hair out in anguish and so much desperation over these things that were taking place in Jerusalem when he finally got there from his captivity in Babylon. And he began to do a great work to turn the people back to God. But their voices until then were not heard. The priests, the Levites, the ones who should have been teaching the people were not doing so. And as a result, Satan was having a great field day in Jerusalem by misleading people, by turning them away from their God. It happens then. It happens 
Throughout the church, history is happening now. We need to prevent that from happening in our body of believers. Friends, we need to take a stand. We need to be faithful to our Lord God and to His Word. And we need to know what His Word says when it comes to defending our position as true believers in living God that we will not allow sin to enter in. But these Jewish itinerant exorcists saw something happening in Ephesus that they didn't expect. That Paul was casting out these demons and healing these sick individuals simply by having his sweatband distributed among those in the city of Ephesus. And they figured, well, this Paul has been here in Ephesus proclaiming this Jesus, and it seems to be working, so let's try it out. And that was their mindset. They figured, well, there's an authority there, obviously. We haven't used it, but perhaps we ought to. So that's why it tells us again in verse 13 that they went around saying to those who were possessed of demons, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't know Paul other than by name. They didn't know the power of God through Christ Jesus. But they thought that because Paul had the authority to use that name, that they too could use that name as well. Verse 14 says, Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did this. Seven sons of a priest in Ephesus. And it says in verse 15, and this is rather comical to me, And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? (laughs) You see, these seven sons of Sceva weren't prepared for that kind of a conflict. They weren't prepared for that kind of opposition from the demon that was in this man. In fact, it gets even worse. It tells us in verse 16, Then the man to whom or in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Tough lesson to learn. But you don't invoke the name of Jesus if you don't really know Jesus as Lord. You don't use the name of one of the apostles of Jesus to bring about something that you imagined might work because it was that sort of magical thing that was going on. That's not the case at all. These men learned their lesson, I suppose, in a very, very hard way. But as a result of that, take note of what takes place next. It says in verse 17, This became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. That's awesome because of their mistake in having used the name of Jesus and the name of Paul in such a way. The word spread that this true power in what Paul is saying, there's not so much power at all in what the Jews were saying. So I'm going to follow after what Paul is doing and saying because it makes more sense. So there was a great move of the Holy Spirit as a result of that one particular incident. And it tells us again even further on in verse 18, And many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. You see, even those who had come to faith in Jesus Christ had formerly been involved in magical practices. People, that's a not accepted by the Lord. It's not an acceptable practice to check out what the Ouija board might tell us. It's not a Christian thing to check out your horoscope every day or ever. It's not a good thing for you to get involved with any kind of witchcraft or any kind of demonic activity that's sourced in those simple practices that many people just simply take for granted. Be careful if you are involved in any of that. Get away from it. That's what they did. They realized that, look, now that we're believers in Jesus Christ, these things that we once trusted in, that's not a good thing to rely on anymore. We need to get rid of it. And 
take note of the fact that they didn't, they didn't sell their books to somebody else. They burned them. I was listening to uh, Damien Kyle recently, and he was talking about the fact that when he became a believer, he and his wife had a lot of albums. Remember those? Those are, those are plastic. They're round, and they're, they, they, used, they used to be very, very, very common. Well, he had a ton of them. And he decided that, and his wife, they needed to get rid of them. So they did. But he was repenting over the fact that they didn't just burn them, they sold them. He says, it's not a very good testimony, but that's what we did. And I'm not recommending that that's what you should do. But if you've got anything still left behind from your pre-Christian days, you need to take stock of what it is, and perhaps it is time to get rid of them. I know one of those things that I did, and Sandy with me, is we poured all the liquor that we had once we became a believer down the sink in the kitchen. It was the most obnoxious smell I have ever, ever known. And I was so glad that we did that. Ouija boards can lead you into a place of great danger. Demonic activity, again, is on the rise. And they are powerful. Take note, looking back at the story that we just read, that man who had a demon stood against seven men and won the fight. So much so that they ran from the house, bloodied. Are you familiar with Pastor Raul Reese? He's a pastor of uh, Diamond Bar in California, Calvary Chapel. When he was at uh, Chuck Smith's church as an assistant pastor, Chuck received a phone call from a desperate person that they had encountered a woman who was apparently demon-possessed. And they asked Chuck if he would come and see what he could do to help. So Chuck and four other men, Raul along with them, went to this place where this woman was. And they realized as soon as they got there that she was indeed possessed. There was no question in their minds. She attacked them. Raul Reese has a black belt. He is a very well-trained man in martial arts. He and five men had a hard time holding this woman down. He had covered her, laying on the floor, on her stomach, and he's a big guy, and she threw him off. Along with the others, they finally, all five of them, were able to pin her down, and they were able to, in the name of Jesus, cast that demon out. That's a real thing that happened. As far as I know, Raul Reese does not lie about such things. So I believe it's real. It's currently in the world today. Don't make light of it. However, don't pursue every demon that's hiding under a rock either. My word, or my God, has spoken in his word. And he said that greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. That's what I like to stand on. I don't need to go looking for them. If they're there, they'll make themselves known, and I'll, by the grace of God, stand firm on his word if I have to encounter any of that. But I don't seek it. I don't recommend anyone doing so. They are powerful. You need to be careful. They brought their books. There was a book that was common in Asia, that Roman province of Asia, that was known as the Ephesian Spells. It was a list of spells that were used in that pagan culture. Very popular book. Probably one of those books that they had, which were burned because 
didn't really want anybody else to be using them. I think that's a proper approach. I don't want anybody to use that which I had once used as an unbeliever. Verse 20 is a central verse in this entire chapter. That's why I've got it posted up above on the projector. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. That's so very important. Recognize the power of the word of God to prevail in every situation, to be the power of God that is available to us all. This is the word of God. And it is all that we need through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to take a stand against the enemy of our souls. When we humble ourselves and submit ourselves to Him, James tells us, the devil will flee. But we're also told, resist the devil. Flee youthful lusts. So it's not just the demonic beings that we are aware of and need to be concerned about in the world around us. But we also need to deal with our own flesh as well. And brothers and sisters, we need to take stock what we allow or what we don't do that we should do. And I pray that every one of us would be willing to assess, examine yourselves, Paul says, to see if you are in the faith. These are trying times in which we are entering. These are difficult days, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us. But if we quench the Holy Spirit, He's not going to do that. If we grieve the Holy Spirit by doing things we should not be doing, He's not going to take that opportunity that He would love to have in us to proclaim the truth of God through us and to shine the light of Jesus Christ in us. Let it be so that we will allow the Spirit of God to move in our midst and in our lives in these last days. Verse 21 says, When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul is knowing now that he's going to be ending his time in Ephesus. And he's telling his friends, apparently, that he's going to go back to Macedonia and Achaia. Those are the European ministries that he had during his second missionary journey, recall. And he's going to go through those areas and then come back through, finally, to Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, his intent is to go to Rome. That was his game plan. That was his expectation. That was what he wanted to accomplish. Remember, Jesus had already told him in a vision that he was going to go to Rome to minister there. So he expected that that was going to be fulfilled. But he believes that on this missionary journey, he's going to leave Ephesus, go back to Achaia and Macedonia, and then come back through to return to Jerusalem. His purpose in doing that, we're told in the letters, is that he wants to bring a gift to the church in Jerusalem, a monetary gift to help them because they're being persecuted and they're having a very difficult time in Jerusalem. It was a very challenging day for the Christians in that city. And Paul wanted to bless his Jewish friends. So in determining that, he tells us in verse 22, Paul sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So the three years aren't totally up yet, but after the end of the two years that he's been in the school of Tyrannus, he sends Timothy and Erastus back to Achaia and Macedonia. It's here that we realize Paul has sent Timothy with at least one of two letters, and perhaps both letters, during this two-year period of time. And shortly after that, Paul had written the letter that we have currently in our Bible as 1 Corinthians. He had also written another letter that we do not have that he mentions in 1 Corinthians that he had written earlier. So Paul had written communication to these people who were followers of Jesus Christ in Corinth while he was in Ephesus. 
And it tells us that he's now sending Timothy back to Corinth. But Timothy had been left in Corinth when Paul first went from Corinth to Ephesus. So Timothy is now a traveler. He apparently had gone from Corinth to Ephesus along with Erastus, and they too now are being sent by Paul to go back to Corinth to prepare the Corinthian church and others in the northern part of the state of Greece now called Macedonia. He's going to present this message and ask for them to collect a gift for the Jewish church in Jerusalem. That's his goal, that's his purpose in writing those letters and sending Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. Then verse 23 gives us a little bit of more insight in all that is taking place in Ephesus near the end of his time there. It says there in verse 23, about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. The way, by the way, is another name of the term we use for the church. We call ourselves Christians, Christ followers. It was known as the way primarily in that day. But I'd like you to take note of the fact that Paul says a great deal of trouble, a great commotion about their faith in Christ was beginning to stir in Ephesus. Things were getting hot. Things were getting difficult. Things were getting challenging for the Apostle Paul. And he writes about that, by the way, in 1 Corinthians. And so this letter that we have as 1 Corinthians was being written about that same time. And if you were to turn, and you can if you like, to chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, the very last chapter of the letter, we see these words in verse 9 of chapter 16. He says, To the Corinthian church from Ephesus, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Adversaries, not adversaries. Adversaries. There are many adversaries. There is trouble brewing. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and in the book of Acts, where we are in chapter 19, Paul is referring to that adversarial challenge that Paul is having to face. He tells us that that adversaries are so great that it was like Paul having to defend himself like fighting lions, if you will. He uses that as a, an expression of the difficulty that he was having. Paul even says elsewhere that he and his fellow ministers in the gospel even despaired of life because of the things that were going on. And these things are now becoming a reality as Paul is facing new challenges in Ephesus. And he explains now, Luke does, as to what that might be that was causing such great difficulty for the Apostle Paul. Verse 24 in the book of Acts, again, chapter 19, says this, For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. And he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made, of, made with hands. So this man, Demetrius, he's a worker in metal, a silversmith. And he has a profession. It's a very profitable one. He makes idols for the worshippers of Diana. Diana is the Roman name for the goddess Artemis, the Greek goddess Artemis. The temple in Ephesus of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was huge. It was three or four times larger than the Parthenon in Greece. It was a temple where many people throughout the region would come. And these silversmiths, these workers in metal, would make these idols and sell them at the temple and made a great deal of profit from it. Notice that what Demetrius is saying is, Paul isn't coming against Diana or, or Artemis, He's not challenging their belief in that goddess. 
He's hurting our pockets. It was money. That was his greatest concern. It was costing him. And he and all of the others who were profiting from this business needed to do something about it. Because Paul was convincing so many people that worshiping at that temple is not what God wants for you as a believer. You must turn from that. Turn from the worship of idols to the worship of God. And he conveyed that truth to many people. And so their profitability became more and more diminished over time. So they've come now against this evil man, Paul, who was taking away from their ability to make a great profit. It tells us in verse 27, not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana, which again is Artemis, may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So they knew that there was a great deal of worship that was going on throughout the entire region of Asia and beyond of this goddess Artemis. Well, who is this goddess goddess anyway? And why was she being worshipped? Well, historians record that sometime around 400 B.C., those in Asia at that time apparently saw something happen that they thought was from the gods. It's going to be mentioned here in this writing of the book of Acts momentarily. But what took place apparently was a meteor must have fallen from the sky, obviously, and landed somewhere near Ephesus. And what was left of that meteor looked like a woman's body, with the exception of the fact that, well, it was kind of deformed. Instead of two breasts, that image that had fallen from the sky had multiple breasts. And so they began to think, this is a message from their god Zeus, that this Artemis that came down from the skies is a goddess that is to be worshipped, and they did. We're not told whether they modified that particular object and sculpted it into the image that is popular today, but if you did some research on the goddess of Artemis, you would see some very grotesque images of that which was done and worshipped in that day. It became a goddess of fertility. It became a goddess where they could have a temple built, and they did. And in that temple, obviously, since it was a fertility goddess, they would offer prostitutes. Sex is behind a lot of what goes on in idol worship, even today. That was what took place. And this is the argument that Demetrius has made. And it tells us in verse 28, Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Oh, just a few times. They didn't do it very long, obviously. Only about two hours. The whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians that Paul was traveling with, his traveling companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. And then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, Paul's friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater because if you did, Paul, you're at the risk of losing your life. They protected Paul. They didn't want him to go into the theater. The theater, by the way, in Ephesus can be still seen today. It's carved out of a hillside just outside of the city. And in its day, it could house over 25,000 people. And the stadium was set up in such a way, it was an open-door, open-air theater, so that because it was on a hill and the surrounding area allowed for amplification, they didn't even have any trouble at all being able to be heard by all the people in those stands that could arrive at that place to sit and participate in whatever event was going on. Ephesus had 
over 250,000 people at that time. And now the people are getting stirred. Something's going on. The theater's getting full. Let's go find out what it is. Let's see what's happening. And that was a kind of a sense of excitement in Ephesus. Most of them didn't know why they were going there. But all they'd heard when they, were got, when they got to the theater is the phrase, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they kept on hearing this ranting over and over and over again. Verse 32 tells us, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. Alexander was a Jew. And they figured, well, they're talking about Diana, the goddess. Here's a Jew that could maybe explain something of why this is all happening. They didn't really realize that Alexander may or may not have been a Christian, by the way. We're not told that. But he's brought in to the people and it says in verse 34, But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out all the more for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. You ever been to a football game, a national football league? I couldn't ever afford the tickets, but I watch them on TV every once in a while. And I notice that there's a lot of shouting going on in those large crowds. So much so that you really can't hear much of anything else that's going on. And that's, if you will, what they were having to deal with. So many people were shouting. There was such confusion. And they really needed to find out some way of quieting down the crowd. Because if they didn't, they would be in trouble. And that's what we see next in our reading here. It tells us in verse 35, when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Artaxerxes, or Diana, and of the image which fell down from heaven? Some of your translations might say from Zeus. Well, the word Zeus isn't in the original language, by the way. It's just that image that fell down from the sky, if you will. So that's why we, based on the historic evidence that we have, this must have been a meteor that fell. That's what they're worshipping, a rock. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. He realizes they aren't speaking against Diana. They're just telling us of a better way, this one God who is not in opposition to Diana as far as Paul is concerned, she is, but, or rather God is in opposition to her, but that's not the way that he was presenting the gospel. He was presenting the gospel as saying, Jesus Christ is the way, the only way. It's not directly against Diana. It's against all false gods. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined, be determined in the lawful assembly. This is wrong, he says. You need to take stock of what you're doing. Be careful. Realize, it says in verse 40, we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So he was able to quiet them down. He was able to address the situation. He's the city clerk, a Roman authority. He had some power in the city, and they respected that power. So he was able to convince them and quiet down the crowd and cause them to finally realize, hey, what are we here for? This is stupid. Let's go home. And so they dispersed, finally. But that opposition had begun against Paul. And Paul was very, very much in trouble if he stayed any longer in Ephesus. He needed to move on. But he had already made plans to do so. And chapter 20 and following will give us the information that Luke 
records for us regarding the final several places where Paul would go on this great missionary journey. This third and last one recorded by the apostle, by Luke, it's very likely that Paul made a fourth missionary journey that is not included in the scriptures. But from chapter 20 onward, we'll be taking a look at the various things that Paul now must encounter on his way to Rome. It's not like Paul could just get an LL ticket from Jerusalem and fly to Rome and arrive in just a few hours. Paul did not exactly, I don't think, plan the way everything worked out. He ultimately would get to Rome. But man, it was not easy. And I wonder, as I look back at my walk with the Lord these 44 years, yeah, that's 44 years. It's a long time, isn't it? It's been a great blessing. What a great privilege God has given to me to serve Him. What a great, wonderful time it has been for me learning more and more every day from His Word, praying to my Heavenly Father, expecting His soon return, proclaiming His strength to this generation, His power to everyone who is to come. That is something that I cherish. And I hope that you understand that all of that time that I have served the Lord in these 44 years, it has not been wonderful. There have been times of difficulty. There have been times of challenge. There have been times of uncertainty. There have been times when I've despaired. I cried out to the Lord on more than one occasion, what is going on? Why is this happening to me? But you know what? In the end, I do know this. God is faithful. And He is faithful still. And He will always be faithful to every one of us. That's what He promises to us. He is a faithful God, even when we are not faithful. Friends, brothers and sisters, there are times when we will face difficulty. And I believe, as I look forward, as much as I am able to, through the fog that is before us, it looks to me as though things are going to get tough. And my understanding of that, should it take place, is that God will provide a way. Always has, always will. I pray daily for this church, this group of people who come, this flock that God has brought together. And I pray for the souls of others who might come and be a part of what we are doing what we're seeing being done by the Lord here in this place. If trouble does come, is it not possible that God might use us, might use this place as a refuge for the lost? That's been my prayer. One of the things that I've been reminded of daily also is that God has provided this place as a shelter from any storms that might come that may affect any one of us. So I believe it is very likely in the days ahead that God may end up using this ministry that you and I are a part of to be a refuge for the lost so they can come in and hear the Word of God and respond to that which God has drawn them to by the power of His Holy Spirit, to receive the salvation that is being offered in these last days while there is still time. But more than that, I want it to be a place where we can be refreshed, even though the storms are around us and the floods are overwhelming us. We will not drown in those floods because God is with us still. So we can experience that great refreshing of the Holy Spirit that's available to us by faith in these last days, knowing that all God wants of us is to be willing to be used by Him in whatever capacity that may be. He's wanting us to realize that He is here with us every step of the way. Whatever we do for God, if it is truly for Him, will be rewarded. 
and we will be able to stand in his presence one day and hear the great wonderful words of Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, time is at hand. Paul tells us that we are to redeem the time. There's precious little time left, I believe, but while it is still day, we need to be mindful of the fact that God has a job for all of us to do in these last hours in which we find ourselves. Until that blessed day comes, when he stands in glory, cries out, Come up here! And with a shout of the archangel and a sound of a trumpet, the church will be in his presence. That's the day that we call our blessed hope. Is it yours? It's mine. Is it going to come soon? I don't know. But it's going to come. I know that we're closer today than when we first believed to that day. I know that sounds almost ludicrous to say such a thing because that's pretty obvious. But listen, it is true. We are closer today. One day at a time, Lord, lead me one day at a time. And I know that someday soon you will come for us and it will be all better. A great, glorious time for all eternity is available to all. And those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ know it all too well. Are we ready to meet Him? Or are we dabbling in things that we shouldn't be dabbling in? Are we looking into things that we shouldn't be looking into? Are we allowing things in our lives that we shouldn't be allowing? The Ephesians burnt all of that. It cost them a great deal. Are you willing to do so? Am I willing to do so? I pray that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Lord, make it so. So by the power of God's Holy Spirit in us, my prayer is this, that Lord, you would reveal to us what needs to go and what must stay behind so that we can go forward in the knowledge, in the power, and in the grace that is available to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.